opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode 43, Richard Speck. Anything new? Do we have news? We had good Thanksgivings. Lots of food. I know, but by the time this post, it's probably going to be Christmas. So, for those who <laughs> celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas. <laughs> I don't know about you. I'm, happy holidays. I'm not even into Christmas anymore. I'm over it. I'm over everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, don't ask me. Yeah. My bank account's over it. My emotions are over it. <laughs> <laughs> Just making it through. Yeah. Making it through the holidays. Ready for 2023. Yeah. I have one final surgery, and then I'm ready for 2023. That's true. Yeah. Yep. You've had many surgeries this year. You've had a very... Not planned. It's not like I'm, I've am i got like liposuction and a boob job and a bunch of fun stuff done. <laughs> Is that fun stuff? Well, it'd be a lot more fun than what I went through, yes. <laughs> I think I would, would choose that over this. Uh, okay, fair enough. Mm, yeah. Well, more and then I should be hopefully ready for 2023. I'm ready for that for you. Me too. We've been trying to get merch together for a while. Maybe we'll get that done in 2023. Who knows? I think that's a good goal. We're going to have it done in 2023. We've already made the prototypes. We've been wearing them. They're great. People are like, when can we buy them? Soonish. There's a whole, yeah, we're, we're trying to figure that out. Yeah, it's like shipping. Weight. It's not as easy as we expected. No, it's really not. We'll get it out there. We're also going to work on hobbies. TikToks? So many TikToks. Yeah, lots of good stuff. Yeah. Now that you only have one job, <laughs> yes. you'll have time. <laughs> I got rid of my most stressful job. So the other job is one I like a lot. And then our podcast. So we both have one job each and the podcast. It's awesome. It's nice now then, that we can balance. Yeah. And then we're working on our homes here and there. But yeah, that's that's our life. We're, we're both, you know, trying to get our, our houses it's expensive. Presentable. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, how can I do this for free? <laughs> yeah, we got to do it ourselves, I guess. I do everything with pallet wood. <laughs> uh, well. Okay, well, okay, so should we begin? Yeah, you're taking us to Illinois? Well, first, we're just going to be, yes, I am taking you to Illinois. We're going to be there the whole time, unless we're in Texas. We're going to discuss a spree killer. And so you're kind of familiar with the victims, right? You know that they were nursing students and they were all killed in one. I know a little event. bit of it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know a lot of the details, but I'm ready to hear this story. I know that Nicole's the one who sent us the recommendation for it, right? Yes. Thank you, Nicole. Send us more because I think we have exhausted all of her recommendations. We've done them all. Yeah. And we will be looking forward to more. All right, let's do it. Richard Speck was born in Kirkwood, Illinois in December of 1941. He was the seventh child of Benjamin Speck and Mary Carbaugh. Speck and his sister, Carolyn, born two years later than Speck, were a lot younger than their six older siblings. His father had been a logger and farmer and later was a packer at Western Stoneware. His mother was very religious and completely abstained from alcohol. So she was one of those, what is it called, a teetotaler or something? Teetotaler? There's a name for it. Is that what it is, teetotaler? Like, because she didn't drink? She didn't drink at all. She abstained from all alcohol. And they have a name. It's it's almost a re- – or it is a religion. No, I have no idea what that is. I think it's a teetotaler. That sounds made up. It's not. 
Look it up. Google it. It's a thing. I may be saying it wrong, but it's a thing. Sounds like a teapot or something. No. It's T-E-E-T, T-E-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-E-T-
Once in high school, he continued to struggle, failing every subject and dropping out in January of 1958 at the age of 16. It does sound like he had a lot of things that went wrong. and Yeah, if he had like a maybe a healthy relationship with his family and like good role models, maybe. Maybe things would have been different. Who knows? Yeah. From 1960 to 1963, Speck worked as a laborer at a bottling company in Dallas. In October of 1961, he met Shirley Malone, who was 15 years old. Speck was 19 years old. Shirley became pregnant within a few weeks of dating Speck, and they married in January of 1962. They lived with Speck's sister, Carolyn, and her husband for a while. Speck's daughter was born on July 5th of 1962, while he was serving a jail sentence for disturbing the peace. A year later, he was sentenced to three years in prison on burglary and forgery convictions. He was released after serving 16 months, but got arrested just a week later after attacking a woman in the parking lot of her building with a 16-inch carving knife. Oh my god. Yeah, he fled when the woman screamed, but the police caught him a few blocks away. So he's starting to become violent. Yes. Do we think he was committing crimes because he was influenced by his father or stepfather? It sounds like when he would drink, he would go into these fits of rage. Yeah, it it amplifies certain behaviors. Right, but not for everybody. So it affects people differently, but for him, it threw him into fits of rage. So he must have had a lot of suppressed anger. I would think so. He ended up being convicted of aggravated assault and had a 16-month sentence, which was supposed to run concurrently with his parole violation sentence. Unfortunately, there was an error somewhere, and he ended up being released from prison just six months later. So he never served on the assault, only the parole violation. That's crazy. Imagine like the victim like is like, this guy just gets out. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm supposed to feel safe. Yeah. But it's always those loopholes. My goodness. Yeah. Or these, or these clerical this, errors. Right. We've come across this a couple of times in episodes. How does this happen? Like, especially with violent crimes. It's like, how? Yeah. After his release in July of 1965, Speck worked as a driver for a meat company. In the three months he worked for them, he had six accidents in the company truck. But he ended up being fired, not for those safety violations, but for not showing up to work. So they're like, get in as many accidents as you want, but you don't show up to get in those accidents and you're fired. (laughs) Makes no sense. (laughs) It's not safety first there. In December of the same year, Speck moved in with an ex-professional wrestler who was now a bartender at Ginny's Lounge, apparently his favorite place to go. She was 29 with three children, and Speck was going to babysit her kids. So this was on the advice of his mother. His mother told him to do this. In January of 1996, Speck's wife filed for divorce. They had been separated, as you can imagine, with all of his times in jail. Yeah, his escapades. Yeah. Also during this month, Speck stabbed a man at Ginny's Lounge and was charged with aggravated assault. But his defense attorney, hired by his mother, was able to argue the stabbing down to a disturbing the peace. So he walked away with a $10 fine, which he didn't end up paying, and he was jailed for three days. And that was that. So $10 <laughs> back then, that was probably like 100 bucks, right? It, probably, yeah. But he didn't even pay still, that. Still, not even that. No. He spent three days in jail for that. That's it. And he actually stabbed someone or just was like threatening someone with a knife? No, he stabbed them. And you get a disturbing got, the peace That charge? attorney argued it down to disturbing the peace. Oh, Some good defense attorneys God. out there. I'm just speechless. You get stabbed, but instead of aggravated assault, you get 
disturbing the peace, which is a very different charge. It's more like, you know, disorderly conduct. Right. Like the drunken, loud mouth outside. That's disturbing the peace. Stabbing is <sighs> not the same thing. Not at all. No. But his attorney did a good job. Ugh. In March of 1966, just a few months prior to the mass murders he would commit, Speck stole 70 cartons of cigarettes from a grocery store and then started selling them in the parking lot of that same store. That's brazen. You're like, let me steal from this store and then just step outside and, you know, I'll set up my sign here. You want to buy some of these cigarettes? He's got a lot of audacity. Yes. Before facing the charges, his sister helped him flee from Texas and he ended up taking a bus to Chicago. His family's helping him in, a in, in yes. the wrong way. Yes. After arriving in Chicago, Speck stayed with another sister for a few days. Then he stayed with some childhood friends. One of Speck's brothers found a job for him sanding plasterboard for a carpenter. Speck then learned that his ex-wife had remarried just two days after the divorce was granted, so he moved into a hotel and spent most of the time drinking at bars with and without friends, so went to pout. Whatever. You know, he was always in jail. I know. Like, these are his own choices. Yeah, she moved on. Yeah. Good for her. Yes. On April 3rd, Speck's crimes escalated to rape when he assaulted 65-year-old Virgil Harris, who was coming home from a babysitting job. He tied her up and stole her money, plus several items from her home. A week later, it is also believed that he murdered a local barmaid, Mary Pierce, and hid her body in a hog house that he had helped build. The items stolen from Virgil Harris during the robbery were found later in a hotel room he had been staying in, but there was never enough evidence to conclusively link him to Mary's murder. Mary died from a ruptured liver, which was caused by a blow to her abdomen. <sighs> Speck had frequented the tavern where Mary had worked, and the hog house was one of many that he had helped build. Police asked Speck to stay in town so they could come back to the hotel and question him, but he left prior to their visit on April 19th to his hotel room. They did find stolen items from his assault on Virgil Harris and items from two other local burglaries from some of the previous months. Mm. So since he left, did that like raise any flags with the police? They had a warrant out for his arrest. Okay. Speck went to his sister, Martha, and her husband's apartment on the northwest side of Chicago and told them a ridiculous lie about having to leave the previous town because he had refused to sell narcotics for a crime syndicate there. <laughs> Some outlandish story. Okay. And they, <laughs> I hope they didn't buy that. Well, I don't know how much they bought it, but I think it was kind of like your family, so you can stay here. So Martha's husband had actually served in the U.S. Navy and thought that Speck should be able to get work through the U.S. Merchant Marine and took him to the U.S. Coast Guard office to apply for a letter of authority to work as an apprentice seaman. He was fingerprinted and photographed and got a job after obtaining the letter, but fell ill and was taken off to a hospital to have his appendix removed on May 3rd. After leaving the hospital, he went back to stay with Martha and her family and then rejoined the crew of the ship he had been working on previously. However, he only served on that ship for a few weeks before getting drunk in front of one of the officers, so he was dumped ashore on June 15th. Dumped ashore? They said he was put ashore or something. Isn't that like, get off? They threw him off? They threw him, they dumped him ashore, right? I hope they did. Would have been good. (laughs) It's too bad they didn't just dump him into the sea at this point. I know. 
On June 30th, Martha's husband drove Speck to the National Maritime Union Hiring Hall in the neighborhood of South Deering, Chicago, to file paperwork to obtain a Siemens card. This hall was one block east of the two-story townhomes, a few of which were occupied by the South Chicago Community Hospital senior nurses and the Filipino Exchange Registered Nurses. The eight students that would later be murdered by Speck live just 150 feet away from the NMU hiring hall. July 8th, Speck was driven to the NMU hiring hall again to pick up his Siemens card and register for a berth on a ship. But another man with more seniority got that position and he went back to his sister's house. By July 11th, Speck had well overstayed his welcome with Martha and her family, so his brother-in-law again drove him to the NMU hiring hall with his bags this time, and Speck stayed the night at a rooming house about a mile away while he awaited an opening on a ship. July 12th, 1966, Speck returned to the hiring hall and received an assignment on an oil tanker and was driven 30 minutes away to East Chicago, Indiana. When he arrived there, the spot had already been taken by someone else and he was driven back to the NMU hiring hall, which was closed by that time. Speck, not having enough money to spend another night in the rooming house, slept in an unfinished house several blocks away. The next day, he returned to the hiring hall seeking a job and complained to his sister and brother-in-law about being sent to an assignment that was already full. He then headed to the bars and spent the rest of the day drinking. So during that time, he threatened a 53-year-old woman from one of the bars he had been drinking at and got her to go back to his hotel room, he had a knife, where he then raped her and stole her gun. Speck then left and went to have dinner. After he had dinner, he continued drinking at another bar until around 10.20 p.m. on the night of July 13th. So did he let that woman go? Yeah, he did not kill this woman. Okay. He raped her and he stole from her, and one of the things he took was her gun. Oh, wow. Poor woman. But luckily she got away. Yeah. So he's at the bar again. It's almost 11, and he just starts wandering the streets, and he's walking towards the nurse's townhouse at 2319 East 100th Street, and it's July 13th, 1966 still. Speck breaks into the townhouse with, he later says, just the intent to rob it. The townhouse was being used as a dorm by nursing students from South Chicago Community Hospital. Upon entering the townhouse, he tied up six of the students' hands with strips of fabric, locked them in a room for hours, and would bring them out one by one to either stab, strangle, or slash their throats. The time between each attack and murder was from 20 to 30 minutes, and the last victim was also sexually assaulted. During these hours, it's said that he was interrupted by a couple of the women coming home, who he also tied up and then murdered. Oh my gosh. And this is one man who just comes in and does all of this on his own? Yes. That is so crazy. Nothing is scarier than like a man who is drunk. And And he had a knife and a gun. Yeah. I'm sure that was such a scary moment because he just broke in there and and tied everyone up. Mm -hmm. My God. One of the students, Cora Amira, had rolled under a bed to hide when she realized what was happening. If you think about this plan, it normally wouldn't work. If a serial killer was aware of how many victims they had, they would have known to look for somebody that was hiding after he tied up everybody. But either he was too drunk to realize how many victims he had locked up or something because he didn't realize that somebody had rolled under a bed. 
And it's crazy if he was so drunk and he was able to do all of this, you would just think a drunk person, they're so intoxicated, they can't even like really stand. But he had been drinking since the age of 12. So it probably took a lot of alcohol for him to not be able to function. It sounds like he could function. He was a high functioning, violent person. Yes. So Cora stayed silent for hours and made sure that he had left before freeing her hands and calling for help. So he left. Yes. After he had raped and murdered the last victim, he left. He thought he had killed everybody there. But Cora was still hiding under the bed and he didn't realize it and he left. But she waited until it was quiet and she didn't hear anything else before getting out just to be sure. And she actually didn't live at the house. She was spending the night with the girls that night. Wow. And so... So some people think either he knew that there were only eight girls living there or he was so drunk he lost count of how many victims he had. I mean, who knows? Thank goodness somebody did survive. Yeah, but she had to see all of her friends and classmates. Yeah, she had to hear every single girl get taken out of the room. How the trauma that you get from something like that, I can't even imagine. Yeah. So the eight victims, Nina Jo Schmale, Patricia Ann Matusik, Pamela Lee Wilkening, Mary Ann Gordon, Suzanne Bridget Ferris, Valentina Passion, Merlita Gargulo, and Gloria Jean Davy were all dead before 6 a.m. on the morning of July 14, 1966. Cora Amira was the only survivor. So did she call the police? Cora climbed out the window and screamed. And the neighbor saw her. Her hands were tied and she was screaming and she called the police. And so, I mean, she didn't want to go back through the house. I'm sure she was scared. So she just climbed out the window. And that's when the neighbor heard her and called the police. Wow. So we're thinking he actually just left through the door then. He came through the door and left through the door and Cora climbed out on the ledge and obviously she couldn't get down. So she just, she screamed for help. And here's a picture of the outside of the townhouse. God, I'm so glad she was able to get away, but I I can't imagine the trauma of that. Yeah. Yeah. The police officer that arrived on the scene sees one of the murdered women with her hands tied behind her back lying on the couch and thought it was a single homicide case. But then he goes upstairs and finds another woman on the staircase dead. This is the entryway here. Yes. So there's a diagram that was actually drawn by the Chicago Tribune artist, Thomas Carollo, and he outlined what was seen when the officer arrived. So it was a two-story townhouse. When he first walks in the door, he sees Miss Davy laying on the couch. She had been strangled, and he thinks it's just a homicide. That's all he thinks that happened. And then he goes up the stairs, and he finds Miss Matusik strangled on the ground. And then close to her, there's also Miss Jordan and Miss Wilkening. Miss Jordan had been stabbed. Miss Wilkening strangled. And then goes around the corner in one of the rooms. There's Miss Ferris, who had been stabbed. Miss Schmael had been stabbed and strangled. Miss Passion had been stabbed and strangled. And then Miss Gargulo, her throat had been slashed. And in the back in the bedroom where he had kept all the women tied up on the second floor, Cora had been hiding underneath that bed. Oh, wow. So she was literally all the way in the back on the second floor. So he had taken all the women into that room and tied them up. And when he wasn't looking at one point, she had rolled under the bed. So this diagram, it's like they walk in, they see... The police officer just sees one murdered woman. And then you 
they go upstairs and, and they see all the rest of the bodies. Yes. It was a very, obviously, traumatic crime scene. They hadn't seen anything like this before in Chicago's history. A sketch was made of the killer by Cora's account, and it only took two days for the police to get an ID. A man named Claude Lunsford was drinking on a hotel fire escape with Speck and ended up seeing the sketch later in the paper. He informed the police about the encounter and told them where they could find Speck. The police did not look into this call, though, so Speck wasn't tracked down until after an attempted suicide that took him to the hospital where he was identified by a doctor. So he tried to commit suicide? Yes. And then he was taken to the hospital, and that's when the doctor ID'd him. But he was ID'd before that, but they didn't look into what the other person said. Why do we think that is? I don't know if he was a homeless man or a drifter or something, but they just didn't take that lead and do anything with it. But he had positively ID'd Speck. Check this out. Miranda rights had just been established a month prior to the murders on June 13th of 1966 in the Supreme Court case Miranda v. Arizona. So did you know that, this is a little sidebar, Ernesto Miranda was a 24-year-old high school dropout who had been convicted in 1963 of kidnapping, rape, and robbing an 18-year-old woman. Did you know that? I didn't even know that. No. The woman identified his license plate number, but could not pick him out of a lineup. Miranda did, in fact, identify her as his victim. He also wrote a confession that matched her statement and included some language about him knowing his legal rights and understanding any statement he made may be used against him. But Miranda's lawyers decided to appeal it to the Arizona Supreme Court, stating that it was false and coerced. The ACLU got involved and argued that Miranda's Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights had been violated on the grounds of having no idea what they actually were. Ernesto Miranda was given a new trial trial and still found guilty of assaulting that woman, but he only served a few years in prison. Just a month after his release, he was fatally stabbed during a bar fight. The man questioned for his murder was made aware of his rights. Thanks to the Miranda decision by the Supreme Court in Ernesto Miranda's case, so the man that stabbed Miranda was read his rights, chose to stay silent, and the police eventually let him go. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. That was just my little sidebar because I thought that was really interesting. So that's how it all came to... So the Miranda rights came from that case. And I thought it was interesting that the person's case who got the Miranda rights established, which are used today, actually died from a stabbing. And his killer went free because of Miranda rights. Yeah, that's established. That is interesting how how that played out. Yeah. Wow. This is back to the case now. So it had just been established a month prior, Miranda writes, and police, not knowing exactly what they should do in Speck's case, and also not wanting the case to be thrown out if they didn't read him his rights correctly, just held Speck for three weeks in jail without questioning him. Which doesn't sound right either, does it? No. But you know what? I mean, we don't feel bad for him. No, I don't feel bad for him at all. But if it was an innocent person, you would be like, well, that sounds like that's against that person's constitutional rights and all. But it's spec. We don't feel bad. No. It was a murky time in the Miranda history of, like, stabbing people and and getting off easy. So I really actually don't – I don't feel bad for him. I don't feel bad at all. But there was probably people during this time when the Miranda rights were first established who were innocent who did sit in jail just waiting because police didn't know the proper procedure and didn't want to let them go. Yeah. I'm sure he's I mean, the there's one. always like a learning curve when something new is established like that. So I, I'm sure, unfortunately, the innocent, innocent people. people that were just like held, I mean, against their rights. Constitutional rights, yeah. 
So let's get into the trial a little bit. And the XYY defense. Speck ended up getting a speedy trial. The eyewitness was extremely believable. That's Cora. And there was a lot of fingerprint evidence from the townhouse that matched Specs. One of the things that his defense attorney tried was the XYY defense. So around the time of his trial, scientists were exploring the theory regarding men born with an extra Y chromosome and how they were more prone to violence. Specs lawyer argued that, but it turned out that Speck didn't have an extra Y chromosome. And in the end, the syndrome that scientists believe made men more violent did not actually exist. What Speck did have, according to a psychiatrist who treated him in prison, was organic brain syndrome, which happened due to a fall from a tree as a child that led to an intolerance to alcohol and caused him to have uncontrollable rages when he would get drunk. One of Speck's previous probation officers said that when he was drinking, he would fight or threaten anybody, but when sober or unarmed, he couldn't face down a mouse. It sounds like there was something when he would drink where he would just get ridiculously violent. But now I don't think that's any excuse for murder, of course. That's kind of scary. Like, how do you know you have that? I guess a tell is if you're violent when you're drunk. Right, because every time he would drink, he would assault somebody, threaten people with knives. But he was actually a nice person when he was sober? His probation officer just said that, yeah, he wasn't aggressive when he was sober. He should have been a... What is it? A (laughs) teetotaler? A (laughs) teetotaler. That would have been really good for him. Should have followed in his mother's footsteps there. Yes. One thing we should say about this psychiatrist, though, is that he was writing a book about Speck. So he ended up being dismissed by the defense when that came to light. Obviously, he was not unbiased as to bringing up some like astounding reason as to why Speck murdered these eight women, because that would look better in his book. So I don't think... It sounded like he had something to gain from, from this. Yes. The jurors took only 45 minutes to deliberate, convicting Speck on eight counts of murder. Speck's attorney took his case all the way to the Supreme Court, but they only got his death sentence overturned. He was then sentenced to 50 to 150 years for each count Served consecutively, that would be 400 to 1,200 years. Again, if you're a Scientologist, he's in there for a while. Yeah. Wow. I mean, they got the death sentence overturned? Yeah. The only reason they got that overturned, I guess some of the jurors were dismissed if they didn't believe in the death sentence. And so that was part of the reason they were able to get it overturned. Because during the initial trial, they had dismissed a bunch of jurors just for not believing in the death sentence. So all the people on the jury panel believed in the death penalty. But it ended up being overturned anyway. Just on that. None of the, I mean, he was still convicted on all eight counts of murder. And never getting out, sounds like. No, for all the rest of his lives. Yeah. In 1991, Speck died in prison of a heart attack at the age of 49. No family came to claim his body. So his ashes were unceremoniously scattered by prison officials. His sister did state later that she thought any grave he had would be forever defaced. And surely that's true. Yeah. Sounds like his family didn't really like care because they didn't even see I don't. Him. Yeah, I don't know that I'd want to claim my brother's body if he murdered people. Why? Yeah. It's such a horrible thing. And yeah. I mean, it's not like he was even a good person before that. No. Makes sense why they wouldn't come to claim it. 
Let's talk about a prison sex tape. He was involved in a prison sex tape? He was. In 1996, a video of Speck surfaced of him snorting cocaine and discussing his crimes very casually. It was also found out that he had smuggled in hormones and grown breasts in prison. During the video, he allegedly shows his breasts and has sex with a male prisoner. I didn't watch the video. I don't know if the video is available. <laughs> I don't care. That is kind but of... you can tell he he was growing breasts in prison, so I don't know if he wanted to transition or what was going on with that. So that nothing is ever said about him wanting to No, nothing was ever said about whether he wanted to be a woman other than the fact that he did somehow smuggle in hormones. The Chicago Tribune did an article which honored the victims on May 28th, 2016 and republished it again on the 50th anniversary of their murders. In this article, there is an interview with Nina's brother, John Schmael, who was 78 at that time, where he talks about finding an old box of photos their mom had packed away, which had a lot of good memories of his sister's time in college as a nursing student before the murders. In that interview with the Chicago Tribune, John says a photo of his sister in her yellow two-piece bathing suit made his heart hurt because he thought back to the Life magazine photo after the murders, which apparently showed it hanging on a rod in her bedroom. But he says that all of the pictures he found also made him, quote, glad to be reminded of who his sister was before death defined her. So much youth and beauty, so much wit and fun, end quote. He also said that time was moving on and the families are slowly disappearing and he wanted to find a way to honor his sister's life and that of her friends. Many of the families have never spoken about what happened. John said that opening the box of photos, quote, at first meant to me that I was going to reopen her death and it turned out that it reopened her life, end quote. And so here's some of the photos and it's really awesome. It just shows like Nina, she's taking care of a baby in the neonatal unit and like the nurses just having a good time on Halloween dressed up and this was somebody's birthday and it just shows them living their lives. Yeah. I mean, they're really such nice memories. Like, Yeah. We'll link to the article because he did a really good job of saying things about them, like talking about the sister and the car she drove and her personality and she was shy. You know, she started nursing school a few years later than everybody else and wasn't sure how it was going to go. But then she ended up having a really fun time with the other nursing students. And it was neat to see that. I think it definitely makes you realize like it's not just a name. It's- yeah, it's not just someone who's remembered because of a tragic incident. Like she these are people life. who have yeah. lives and they were meaningful and they had yeah. fun and, mm-hmm. you know, seeing that kind of stuff really humanizes them. And he was talking about how Richard Speck had a documentary and books and at at least one movie, maybe more, but how it's all about him and the victims fade. Yeah. And and they're literally just victims. Like most people don't even know their names, but Richard Speck gets all of these things. And what about the women that lost their lives? And before that, they lived. Before it was the big headline. Like he said, before death defined them. Yeah. How many documentaries do we see that kind of like glamorize and kind of put the serial killer first and the victims aren't really the priority in those kind of documentaries. Yeah. Um, do you think that's important to highlight? These are the people that mm-hmm. matter. It's a great article. He succeeds at making you really see like what these women's lives were like and their personalities. Yeah. So I thought that was great that he did that. And we'll put the link in our Spotify. So if people want to click on that link, you can just read about these women's lives and it's just happy. That was a heavy episode. I know. 
And I think, I don't know if we already talked about it, but when you, when I looked at a picture of him, his face looks like, or his eyes have a very like dead glaze over them whenever he's in like photos. Yeah. And it could be because he was drunk in those photos. If they're arrest photos, it's probably because he was drunk. Yeah. I didn't realize that he was drunk a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I just was like, he really looks like he doesn't have a lot of emotions. He's kind of like a scary looking person. Um, He has these dead eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to need a nap after that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. We've recorded two episodes today, 42 yes. and 43. Yep. And then we have possibly a two-parter coming up. Courtesy of you. The book should be here in a few days. We'll see. Exciting. What about you? Do you know what you're covering next? I don't know what I'm covering next, but I feel like it'll come to me pretty quickly. Okay. If Nicole wants to suggest something. <laughs> I mean, like I said, we're, we're always taking suggestions. <laughs> I'm just going to go off of my list that we started making. Oh, yeah. I have a lot on my list, and I think I'm finally like, able to get to <laughs> some get that to I've some been wanting these. to. Yeah. Yeah. If you have any suggestions for us, email us at freshlybrewednoir at gmail.com. And follow us on the socials, um, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, at Freshly Brewed Noir. Go ahead and rate us, review us, five stars, if you please. Jennifer prefers five stars, so make her happy. She's a sweet girl. (laughs) I try. (laughs) And until next time, stay caffeinated, get hobbies, and don't murder people. Bye. Bye. Bye.